So usually how I like to, to start these conversations is really about individual's path and, and their journey to kind of get to where they are. Fortunately, when I get to talk to people, they're working on some some pretty big things, you know, stuff that they're they've kind of been down a career path and they're finally at the prime of the prime of their career, so to speak. And they're working on some pretty cool things, some pretty big things that are gonna take up a lot of time, a lot of energy in their life. So give us a little brief overview of your path to good returns and, and sort of the world of impact investing and, and using sort of capital to really to really mature the impact space and kind of ignite it to where we see it going now. Grant, I, I love sharing this story. For me, I kind of fall in that category of your typical millennial, and I use that in quotes because I, I don't know if there is a typical millennial, but I, I went through what I call my quarter-life crisis after starting my career in finance, had my internships on the Chicago Board of Trade, you know, yelling and screaming in the pits, trading corn wow. options and soybean wow. options, clerking. So I, I was really thrown into the fire and, and ended up taking a job at a, a big bank and got the experience to kind of see the banking industry as a whole and then did some consulting work uh, specifically with private equity clients and kind of seeing that space from a high level. And, and during that time, I just became really infatuated with this concept of how to use capital for good in the world. And I say that like I knew what I was talking about, but just that concept was intriguing and I had no idea what it meant. Right. And it was actually through a Stanford Social Innovation Review article that I became very aware of the concept of social enterprise and how you can use business models to solve these social problems and really wanted to explore that. And it led me to the space of microfinance, which I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, and got the opportunity to be on a board and partner with groups like Grameen, um, addressing you know the, the access to credit gap that exists in a lot of developing economies and particularly focused on how do we empower women entrepreneurs, which we'll, I'm sure in this podcast, talk a lot more about it, but being able to provide capital to folks that have a sound business model are able to use that capital to grow. And in doing so are addressing these pressing social challenges that became very exciting to me. And after being on the board for a little bit, I got to meet my current business partners and we shared this passion for testing, innovating new approaches to get more capital off the sidelines into the social impact space. And I decided this was where I wanted to have my career. And so I turned in my, my two weeks notice at KPMG and we've been on the run ever since just innovating, testing things. And as most entrepreneurs will tell you, you kind of start out with your plan and it totally evolves <laughs> over time. And that's definitely been the case for me, but it's been such an exciting journey, you know, to take a look at what we were thinking about, which now kind of feels like small potatoes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess that's my, my text is coming out using my, the term small <laughs> potatoes, but it, it, now you can kind of see, and I know you've seen it, the impact investing space is just blowing up. There's so yeah. much interest, so many ideas, and also so many needs that have to be addressed for this space to really grow in an effective way. And we've been participating in that growth at every step of the way. And being here in Dallas, Texas, I think is a really unique place to be because we have 
so many resources. We have a huge concentration yep. of Fortune 500 companies. We have, you know, one of the largest international serving airports. We have one of the, the fastest growing job rates, but we also have things like uh, an extremely high childhood poverty rate. You know, we have issues of addressing hunger. This past winter, we had um, issues where people didn't even have access to running water because of an ice storm. You know, th there are things that in Dallas that need to be solved. So there's, it's a, it's a place to test some of these innovations, to use some of this capital in innovative ways. But it's also great because if you can do it here, it can really be scaled to other parts of the world. And so we love being here in Dallas, Texas. We love, I always tell people, we love moving capital from off the sidelines to yeah. do good in the world. And and that's what we're really focused on at Good Returns and as a team. You talked about, you know, put your two weeks in and you know, <laughs> huddling with your partners and trying to figure out, you know, different ways and in innovating the space of sort of allocating capital for, for like a, a purpose, right? Try to maybe solve a problem. What were some of those initial Initial, like ideas, right? Like, like you say, obviously the business models change and ideas change, but when you guys first wanted to, like, we're launching this thing, right? Like what were the first, what was the first mission state, right? What were some of the, the things that you were really excited about when you first started? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that Quentin Tarantino style, which is Wait. I'll start with where it is today and then I'll kind of <laughs> flash back. So today at Good Returns, what I what I tell folks and what my team tells folks is we are really focused on building financial sustainability within the impact sector. That's kind of our overarching statement. And that can play itself out in a lot of different ways. So some of the things that we do are we work with nonprofits to uncover business models, to enable them to become impact investable, all the way to we like to build innovative financing structures that enable impact organizations and impact projects to thrive. So that's kind of where we are today. When we got started, our, our big passion was around turning corporations into what I call impact lenders. So enabling them not just to make corporate grants or invest their volunteer time, but to really use the power of their balance sheet to help grow and scale social innovations and social enterprises that are doing really unique work. And that's what got us started. We kind of set out and said, we want to do this. You know, when we first went to companies, they kind of laughed at us and said, you know, it sounds good on paper, but it's never been done before. So how about you go try it somewhere else and then come back to us? And, <laughs> and I've, one of the, the things that came out of those discussions was we actually built and, and scaled our own for-profit company that was just an e-commerce business that sold body care products and home care products. And then we took 100% of the profits each year and invested it into these impact loans, interest-free mm. loans that would go primarily to, to microfinance groups that were empowering women entrepreneurs around the world. And they would the capital would spend a year in service. And then at the end of the year, those organizations would repay us again, interest-free. And that was kind of our testing grounds. We wanted to prove the model. And so we did that for several years before we ever brought on you know, our first major corporation. And that was huge because it did prove that the model worked. We never had a default. 
And the impact that was created just through a small e-commerce company was mm. tremendous. And yeah. the organizations that we that we worked with, you know, they said this type of capital was so important because what existed in the marketplace was, you know, if they were a nonprofit, there was no, they couldn't sell stock, there was no equity right. opportunities. Right. If they went to go raise grants. It's very time consuming. A lot of times the funding is restricted and there's on, only so much philanthropic capital that exists in the world. And as we're seeing, there's a lot of nonprofits out there that are doing amazing missions, but the pie of dollars hasn't really gotten bigger. It's just to come in and kind of take your piece of the pie to do your mission. And, and that puts a lot of limits on these nonprofit organizations. And then there's you know the commercial side. Can they go to the bank and mm -hmm. get access to capital that way? And a lot of times the answer is no, it's just not financially right. viable. And so that leaves them kind of in this gap of where do we find this financing? And when we originally started, we saw corporations as uniquely positioned to provide that capital because not only could they provide the capital, but they also could provide a platform to share the stories of these amazing organizations with their customers and their employees. And there's a whole set of impact outputs that come from that work alone. You, you, you said something really interesting was work with nonprofits to make them show them business models to make them mm -hmm. investable, right? Yeah. Give us an example of maybe what that means. It's a, it's a great thing to say. It's a really hard thing to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and that's something that that we've had to refine over the years. And and my colleague Jennifer Ware leads this aspect of our programming. It's actually we call it sustain, and we do it in partnership with three key pieces. So we partner with foundations that have relationships with these nonprofits and, and identify nonprofits that have a certain set of criteria and they're ready to do this type of work. So not just, hey, we want to create revenue, so we're less relying on grants, but actually have the buy-in of the leadership of the nonprofit that they have some semblance of an idea of where they want to go. And so identifying nonprofits with that characteristic is really important. So we have the foundation, the nonprofit, and then we we always take a community-centered approach. So you asked if we come in and kind of say, here's some ideas. That's not what we do. And and we've learned that the hard way. <laughs> it's always better to have the, the local communities unearth these ideas through their own channels and own resources. And I say that because when we're coming in, I mentioned before, we're here in Dallas, Texas. If we're working with a group up in rural Oklahoma, we don't mm -hmm. understand the challenges right. of the community in rural Oklahoma. We don't understand the dynamics. We don't understand what resources are available to them. So what may have worked in downtown Dallas may not work in rural Oklahoma. Right. And so being able to come in, talk to the community and understand those dynamics, they are going to have much better solutions than we ever would. That's the first piece. The second piece is when they develop their own ideas, you get community buy-in. So we run a structure where we actually find community members, and those can look like local civic leaders, local business leaders, educational leaders, and they come together on a team and they're usually generally passionate about the mission of the nonprofit that they're working with. And we bring them through a series of steps. The whole first year is just called a concept phase where they're just coming up with ideas. And we provide them some frameworks to say, you know, think of ideas that can achieve these goals and has this type of potential. And 
you'd be amazed at like these ideas that pop up that we would never have thought of as an internal team, but then they start, you know, kind of vetting those ideas and seeing if they stick. And at the end of the year, our goal is to have three high potential ideas Hmm. that the community has bought in. They understand a roadmap and then they go into kind of a test phase and, and test phase is really validating the assumption. So, you know, for a, let's say you have a nonprofit that's really focused on creating workforce development and addressing hunger issues within a a given community. One of those ideas, and we've actually had this, is should there be a community kitchen? Mm -hmm. Should they have a space where local entrepreneurs can come in and create a food mm-hmm. business and right. share that space with a kitchen and the and the nonprofit runs it and they rent that space out and it's a lot more affordable for these entrepreneurs than building a commercial kitchen you know right. things like that totally. well that's a great concept on paper but you got to vet that that <laughs> concept actually works and it your vetting process shouldn't be let's build a commercial kitchen and see if it works <laughs> There are smaller things that you can do. You can, you know, have set up a baking competition, let's say, Mm -hmm. and have the local community. Are people excited about cooking in your community and doing it for a cause or participating in a group framework? That's an element that you can test rather easily. And if you're getting good results, that can educate your decision on whether or not to set up that commercial kitchen. So if that, let's say that test was successful, what is the next phase after that for? After, after test, it really becomes a pilot. Okay. So once, once you get comfortable that the data that you've collected supports that this is a, a viable option, and I forgot to mention this, but it is really important when we come in to sustain one of our goals is that over the course of five to seven years that we develop a business model concept that 100% covers the costs of the nonprofit. So Hmm. the idea is, can we make them completely financially independent and self-sustaining for the foundation? Because usually foundations have a lot more needs to address than they have capital to address them with. And so being able to put their nonprofit partners on a path to sustainability frees up more capital in the long term to support other groups. So I just want to throw that in there because it's important. Because when you get into this pilot stage, you have to have that in mind. So if you're just going to build a, you know, a commercial kitchen that brings in $30,000 worth of profit each year, but your, your budget as an organization is a million dollars, that may not be the thing that you want to pilot. But if your goal is to create a chain of commercial kitchens around the state, Mm-hmm. And the nonprofit manages those and it and it feeds into the mission of the organization, then yeah, you might want to pilot that. And then if that works, you can start expanding to different cities. And over the course of again, you know, five to seven years, you get to that point of financial sustainability. That's those are the types of ideas that you want to pilot in scale if possible. And and ultimately the foundation is excited about that because if you get to the point that something becomes impact investable, right. then the foundation has an opportunity to do things like a program related investment and not just use their grant dollars, but use their other resources as well to really catalyze growth within that impact area. So you, you said one thing earlier that, that I thought was interesting as well. You touched on like sort of keeping with the local Dallas area, right? There's sort of child poverty, right? There's 
mm-hmm. you know, educational issues. It might be, you know, healthcare issues and uh, a number of other things, right, that any sort of major city is going to face. How are those things, how can those things be solved, right, by impact investing? Grant, that's a loaded question. <laughs> you know, if, if I had the answer to that, oh my gosh. Um I mean, there wouldn't be time to even be on this podcast because there'd be so much to implement and and the timing. There's just so much need right now that, you know, if answers are fully formed and vetted and exist, we need to get those to the forefront. And I think there's a lot of concepts that are emerging ideas, pilots, like you said, and that we've talked about that are exciting. And I think we need to be able to move those forward. My answer at a high level to you is really, we need to start focusing a lot on infrastructure and ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I think there's not a lot of time spent or not nearly enough on being able to connect all these moving pieces. Mm. And that's why I think your podcast is so important and being able to share these ideas and to learn from different perspectives is so important. But it, it seems right now in the impact investing movement, everyone has kind of staked their claim in this is the area I'm focused on. And then they kind of put their heads down and their blinders on and say, okay, let's just push this forward. And I think there needs to be a lot more communication and cross-sector collaboration to make this stuff possible. You know, you mentioned impact investing. There's different types of capital. Yeah that are moving into the impact investment space. I I firmly believe that philanthropic capital is underperforming in what it could do in the impact investing space. And what I mean by that is philanthropic capital has the ability to de-risk transactions in a way that catalyzes outside capital to come into the conversation. To give an example of this, our, our program that we built for corporations, when we were having those conversations with corporations, they said, hey, we, we do our corporate grant making, but you're asking us to use a different pile of money and that money can't be at risk. You know, We're not in right. the business right. of lending. We're a corporation that does something completely different. And we looked at that and said, well, if someone was willing to take that that risk or, or put in a first loss or whatever it is, would that enable this capital to come in at a, at a larger amount? And the answer is mm. yes. And so talking to foundations and, and they look so at they, their grant they would, making. They would bridge the gap, you're saying? like film. Exactly. Yeah. You know, what if, what if for yeah. every dollar that a foundation grants, you know, $10 of private institutional capital can be pushed into the impact investing space. Those are the types of possibilities. If we can start bridging and bringing together these partners and educate them on how these capital elements can stack together, how these dollars can go into a project together. And that's one of the things that we're really focused on at Good Returns is not just educating, but actually starting to put those deals together and creating examples of how we can do that. Before we leave this topic, I think it's also important to mention measurement because that is another missing piece within the impact investing space. So you talk about how do we address education? How do we address poverty? And one of the first things that I land on is, well, how do how do we know know whether or not what we're doing is working. And we haven't spent enough time to understand what are the core metrics that we're focused on. And then once this capital moves into this space, how do we determine whether or not it's being successful, not just from an absolute value, whether we helped one person or two people or three people, but how do we know that it's better than what already exists in the marketplace? What are the benchmarks to say, okay, this is performing better than what it was? And I think that's really important to 
start connecting these pieces together, say, okay, these are the metrics we should be focused on and not just how do we capture the data, but then how do we report on that? And again, I, I see a lacking element of infrastructure when it comes to impact measurement, particularly around impact investing. We know how to measure financial performance, right, but right. how do we marry that with the impact side? And so these infrastructure pieces of connectivity and you know, how do we bring technology into the fold to maybe address some of these infrastructure challenges, those are questions that are being answered today. So I'm really excited you know, when you and I hop on a phone call and, and grab a beer five years from now, we won't be talking <laughs> about this because it will have been solved. But right now you can see there's such a pressing need to address those challenges. I want to touch on something because I think bridging philanthropic capital or foundations, like bridging mm -hmm. the gap, de-risking some things so where more outside capital, traditional capital can come into the space is is a super interesting idea. And I, and I want to shout out Dr. Lydia from 8B Education Investments. We had her on the Disruptors for Good podcast a while back. And she said something very similar where she was like philanthropic foundations and, and sort of that side of, of the capital allocation point of view have such a great advantage because they can take the big risk, right? They can mm. take the big swings because, you know, just how, just how foundational money is structured, right? Like if there's a startup, right, that has a really innovation, uh, an idea around it that is trying to solve, you know, poverty or hunger within an area, right? And, and maybe, hey, uh, an accelerator or traditional angel investors want to come in, but they're a little hesitant, but if they were matched, right? Just like, just like, donations are matched, right, by corporations or, or whatever would have you. But what if like raising money was matched, right? Like you take like investors and say, hey, we'll put up $500,000 and it'll be matched by these foundations, right, to get the startup, the capital they need to kind of go, you know, make that innovation stronger and, and, and grow that way. I think that's such an interesting way where we can get these this innovation into solving these problems, right? Because there has to be, there has to be something with creativity, entrepreneurship, innovation, and not leave it up to the government to solve these issues, right? Where they're just not, that's just not what they're built for, right? They just haven't done a great job, right? So how can we take angel investors or just institutional investors or any type of impact investor you want to say, right? Merge that outside capital with philanthropic capital, right? To get these ideas off the ground and go for it. I think you're absolutely right. Around philanthropic side, you gave an example of match. And we've seen that in so many examples of corporate matching their, you know, employees giving. So we, we know that, that there's a compelling marketing component to that where people get excited. When they mm -hmm. feel like their dollar is able to be multiplied, people get pretty excited. I'll say on the, on the flip side of that, when you talk to an investor and you can tell them that their risk just went down in addition to more capital coming in. That's also very exciting for a potential investor in any deal. That's not just an impact investing sure. thing, but if you can say, you know, your, uh, your risk went down, that's fantastic. And <laughs> I think you're absolutely right that there's a potential there. And, and we're starting to see, I think, foundations move into this space. We're, we're starting to see a huge wave of corporations move into the impact investing venture capital space. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, yeah. it seems like every week there's another hundred, couple hundred million dollars fund that's being launched yeah. to, to, to address this space. But I, I look at foundations and 
if they could come in, they don't even have to do a dollar for dollar match. But if you said, you know, to an investor, hey, every $10 that you put into this, this impact project or this fund that's going to be used for a certain purpose, mm -hmm. there's going to yeah. be a foundation that puts in $1 of first loss on anything. Hmm. I think that's that huge. could be really enticing. And for the foundation, they're seeing a huge amount of leverage on that $1. Again, it's structured as an investment. So the intention is that it will come back. They do kind of sit in a first loss. So if there's, if something bad happens, you know, they kind of sit in that first place of not getting their money back. But at the end of the day, if they do get their money back, you know, it's something that they could then turn around and reinvest in something. So mm -hmm. uh, if they lose that money, it's structured as a grant and it goes towards their 5%. Um, and if you set up these deals correctly, it's going to go towards something that's very directly related to their mission. If you're funding a social enterprise and they can't pay back, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's because you know they're financially insolvent or that they're not performing well. It may just be that they need to really focus on their mission and they had to sacrifice some financial gain to achieve a mission outcome. And the foundation should be totally willing to support that, especially when it enabled more dollars to come in at the front end to do something really unique in the impact investing space. So I absolutely agree with you that the philanthropic sector should be taking those really risky positions. And I think we will be so excited as a society when we see that those risky positions at the end of the day aren't actually that risky. Exactly. That, I, I, you yeah, know, these I, investments I totally are going to perform. Yeah. And then you'll and and then this will kind of solve itself, and you know we'll we'll have a whole thriving impact investing ecosystem because things that we thought were risky really aren't, and we'll start seeing more capital come in from the sidelines, which is so desperately needed in this space. When you talk to investors, what is their response when you know you talk about impact investing and maybe talk about different approaches and different ways to you know to invest their money? Has it been was it difficult first? Has it gotten easier because you know the term has kind of has kind of been in the mainstream a, a bit more? What what do you see just just being on the in the field uh, every day talking to investors? What has the sentiment been like maybe you know over the last you know sixteen months or so? I would say interest is at an all time high. <laughs> Great understanding yeah. is <laughs> not in pace with the interest, and and that's normal for any space. You know, impact investing. Some depending on who you talk to, it's been around for ten years, fifteen years. You know, if you talk to other folks, there have been impact investors around. You know, since money existed. So depending on who you talk to, is, is how long it's been around. But for the sake of this argument, it's a relatively new space. And with any new space, you know, you're going to have interest, and as it gets more mainstream, that interest is going to grow. And then people are going to say, but what actually is it? And I think that's where we're, we're starting to see the evolution. You know, there's, there's starting to be lines drawn in the sand around what is ESG sort of portfolio mm -hmm. alignment right. and true impact investing. And that, that's probably a whole discussion for uh, a different <laughs> day. But I think that's evidence around how education is starting to evolve. And we're starting to see institutional investors 
investors, you know, say, okay, here's, here's how we can help ESG align your portfolio and do negative screening and the positive screening. But also, we want to start bringing deals to you that would be classified as real impact investment. And that may be, you know, investment in a private affordable housing deal or mm-hmm. a big thing right now, which I, I say to folks, if CDFIs, community development financial mm-hmm. institutions are not in your portfolio of impact investing, it needs to be because it is such an important thing to make sure that there's equitable access to financial resources and business training for all communities. And I think CDFIs are really leading that charge and getting capital to the places that have been so often neglected, overlooked, and those are very gracious terms <laughs> yeah. to these communities by traditional financial institutions. Can and you explain really quick, just what, for those who aren't really ingrained in it, and, and for me, right, to, for, to educate me a little bit on exactly, I mean, I know the term, I know broadly what it is, but can you just touch on a little bit what the CDFI actually is and, and what it does and what its purpose is? Think of it as a bank with a equal, if not greater emphasis put on community development and providing resources to enrich an entire community over traditional financial returns. So where you have your traditional financial institutions that, you know, they're run as businesses, CDFIs, which can be both nonprofit and for-profit, have a much stricter requirement to make sure that they're providing equitable access to funding resources, that they're getting capital to nonprofits that may not fit or be able to access traditional commercial resources through your bigger bank. And so those organizations are the ones that are building the relationships on the front line, again, with those small business owners, especially in in a post-pandemic world where a lot of these communities may not be able to trust normal banking institutions Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. long-standing histories and and cycles of oppression and discrimination. CDFIs have been around for a while, but they're really coming to the forefront because those are the groups that are extending those much-needed resources to the end entrepreneurs, the end small business owners, the end nonprofits that that haven't been able to access it through your your bigger banks and financial institutions. And so that's so important right now. And I'll, I'll also throw this in, and Catherine from CNOTE, I'm sure will be able to speak even better <laughs> on this, yes. but CDFIs are such a well-performing asset in any portfolio. I mean, this has been proven time and time again, but when you start, uh, when, when, when you include entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. specifically minority entrepreneurs, specifically women entrepreneurs, those individuals repay at a higher rate, you know, have a, a lower default and have amazing business ideas and work drive and work ethic. And it's a, such a good performing asset class. And CDFIs, that's who they work with on right. a daily basis. They're they're making those investments. And by investing into CDFIs, you are therefore making those investments. And so I just I just think that's such an important thing. Folks are starting to see it now more and more, but it's still not to where it should be. I mean, every group should be investing in this, including, you mentioned the public sector and government. Mm-hmm. I think that could be an amazing partnership to make sure that resources get into these underserved communities. And I think ultimately it benefits the public sector whenever you can create, you know, create jobs, grow businesses, 
especially as we enter this recovery period with COVID, that should be of the utmost importance for, for everyone in our country. I wanted to touch, Michael off a little rails here, but we, we kind of touched on it. I love bit. it. Let's do it. But, but, <laughs> but I, so being here in, in Europe now, and there are some interesting things, right? Different things that they do here. The one thing that I saw roll across the tape uh, a few weeks ago, I think it was, is that the European Commission, I think is what they have. They have sort of this entrepreneurial sort of sector of the government, right? And what they are going to do is that they actually started a fund within the government to actually to fund startups, right, in Europe. And mm-hmm. with that, they actually will, taxpayers will reap the returns, right, if companies do well. And I'm like, I really, and, and obviously it's not, it's not good in every business sector, right? It's not going to be government's investing in Uber, right? That's not what we're talking about. But there's other sort of business, right, like technologies that can sort of help help uh, healthcare systems, right, talk to each other better or something like that, right? Something that helps a community at scale by building something like that, right? And I thought that was an interesting approach and, and who knows, right? Like the data will tell us if this is good or not. And uh, it, it might be weird for companies to work with governments in America, right? Usually they're on different side of things. Um, but what's your quick thoughts on that? And maybe that approach that Europe is taking and kind of just like, investing in their talent, right? And, and at the end of the day, they might get returns from it, which is great for, for everybody. My thoughts on it are, I, I love the concept. I love the idea, you know, and if you, if you put me in a position of power to make the call on whether or not to do that, I'm probably doing it. That's, that's kind of- I think in America, it would work citizen. better at a local <laughs> level, like not at a federal level, mm-hmm. but like Dallas, right? Like if Dallas were to do like a $10 million fund for, for entrepreneurs in Dallas, right? And they- I, I think it. you're right. I think that's really, I think that is really interesting because you can allocate it to whether it's minority founders, whether it's women founders, whether it's what, I just think you're going to get more people to step up and like learn right entrepreneurship, right? And learn mm-hmm. how to like pitch. And then you get this private and public partnership a little bit right? Or, or you might even say some local Dallas investors say, hey, you know, we'll put up, you know, $5 million for this fund if the city of Dallas will put up the other five, right? And now you're yep. kind of having this pool where the community is working together and maybe you, you allocate it towards certain things, right? Maybe it's a healthcare fund where you look at health tech or it's agro it's agrotech where you look at, you know, food insecurity or, or something like pick topics, right? It could be a fund for, for a certain topic and then you just go do it, right? I think that's a it's a possible t- case study out there for a city to do it rather than a federal level. I don't think it would work, but I think like you said, because you don't know what's going on in rural Oklahoma, right? But the mm-hmm. people of Dallas know what's going on. And that might be an interesting way to kind of get some of this stuff solved. I, I agree. Like, like everything that we do at Good Returns, the concept is there. It, it looks good on paper. Let's pilot it. Let's test it. And it comes back to what I was saying about measurement too, is we got to find a way to determine whether it's successful or not. And we have to be willing to be patient in some ways because we need to have the program mature, be able to see kind of all the downfalls, potential downfalls, but all the successes as well. But then we also need to be willing to put in the work that during that timeframe, we need to start measuring whether things are successful in the interim. So being able to have certain benchmarks to say, is this performing the way it should? Do we need to change things so that we don't wait 10 years to see this fund mature and it was broken the whole time and we could have fixed it in year two? 
you know, yeah, those types of totally. things. If we can do that, like you said, if, if we can do that on a local level in some isolated places, see those results, make refinements as needed, and then scale, I think that's a, a tremendous idea and, and something that should definitely be looked at. I, I, I'm always a fan of if you can make the case to a taxpayer of why investment in here will actually benefit the taxpayer over the long term, either in reduction of taxes or increase in uh, value of a, of a certain asset that the taxpayer cares about. I think that's always a benefit. I think you know tax dollars can be very useful, but I don't think you can just come in and say, we're going to do this huge project that we don't know if it's going to be successful or not. Totally. <laughs> and oh, yeah. The taxpayers pay for it. And I think that happens far too often in sort of the progressive side of things. And that's what, what creates, you know, this tension. But I think if you can come in with the business case, you know, that's something that can really unite. I'm talking from an American perspective, but both sides, um, you know, whether you're conservative or, or liberal or, you know, progressive, whatever it is that, you know, if we can solve these problems and create value for the community as a whole, that that's a win-win. Let's, let's do that every single day. <laughs> Let's strive yes. to do that. So I'll end on this. What are you excited about, you know, in, in your space over the next, let's say, you know, three to five years? What, what, gets, what, what are you optimistic about? What gets you up in the morning and motivated? I am excited about the innovation in infrastructure. And this is a little uh, biased and I guess in some ways self-serving, but the idea of building new infrastructure that gets capital from the sidelines into the impact space to address some of these gaps. We're at good return starting to build the infrastructure. We know of other organizations in the space that are building this infrastructure that's not just for an isolated component. But, you know, how do we get, you know, some of these questions of how do we access philanthropic capital and mobilize it in a way that makes sense and aligns with the needs of the philanthropic capital, but then encourages, whether it's, you know, corporations, whether it's institutional investors, whether it's the public sector, have that capital go into this space. Because as these social enterprises, as these nonprofits with business models, as these new innovations rise to the forefront, they need capital to grow. And so the infrastructure to get capital to those places needs to grow along with it. That's the first thing that I'm really excited about and to see that evolve over time. The second is definitely around measurement. You know, this idea of when I think of measurement, there are two big pitfalls. The first is a lot of the data that we get is self-reported. We need to solve for that challenge. How do we get better quality data and I'm saying, you know, as someone who is in the corporate audit division of, of a big bank, so I'm, I'm always focused on the quality of the underlying data. And then the second pitfall within impact measurement is, is how do we report that in an effective way that enables us to make really sound decisions? So how are we distilling this information, uh, the data down to key metrics, you know, key things that we can look at and say, okay, that's working or that's not working. And here's how we change it. And here's what we need to measure to make sure our changes work. And, and I'm excited because I think there's groups out there, you know, I'm I'm thinking off the top of my head, a group like Upmetrics that is taking this data and building dashboards so that impact investors, foundations, nonprofits can make really good decisions that ultimately is going to make the impact more efficient and make sure that we're 
solving the problems that need to be solved in the best way possible. Thanks so much, Kyle. Thanks so much for taking the time. Love the conversation. I knew it would be fun. Best of luck the, the rest of the rest of this year and, and, and hopefully over the decades to come up, man. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Grant. This was awesome. I'm looking forward to keeping the conversation going. And um, I, I just love this podcast. So thanks again for letting me be a part of it.